This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. Moody, Niner 1, 4 Niner Victor, uh, Duluth, if you hear Duluth, I'd to acknowledge, please. I reached my, my left hand forward and, and realized that my window wasn't there anymore. Um, and that's when I sort of snapped into, into the current and looked around and realized that I was on the ground and I wasn't actually flying. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is Dan Bass. Dan is a commercial pilot, CFI, with about 2,500 hours of flying time. He soloed on his 16th birthday, achieved his private pilot certificate on his 17th birthday, and in the ensuing years, he's owned a Mooney and an Air Coupe and flown several other different kinds of airplanes. Dan, welcome to There I Was. Uh, thank you, Richard. So, uh, Dan, you and I were chatting at the Minnesota Seaplane Pilots Association outing at uh, fabulous Gull Lake up there, Madden's on Gull Lake. Isn't that a great event, by the way? Oh, it's unbelievable. Um, that was my first time, and I'm sure it won't be my last. Yeah, just a great group of people. Steve does a great job. Steve and Kirsty hosting it, and I uh, always enjoy going there. Great group of people, very safety-minded. But during that, you were one of the speakers at the conference, um, and you told of your incident when you were flying your Mooney where you had some carbon monoxide uh, poisoning, and it was a fascinating incident. And so afterwards, you expressed your willingness to share that with our uh, podcast audience. So thank you for doing so. Do you mind kind of uh, set the stage for us? Uh, what what were you doing? What was the flight like? Uh, let, t- take us take us from the beginning. Well, it was it was early of 2017. It was in February, and I'm based up here in Minnesota, the nice cold north. And uh, I had a, a trip I needed to fly for work where I needed to get up to Thunder Bay. And it's about a uh, probably an eight-hour drive from here. And so I really wanted to fly the airplane because I could do it in a day. Um, and it would make it a nice, easy trip. The preceding couple of weeks before the trip, I was trying to plan the perfect weather window. I had some apprehension flying in the cold. You know, up here we can deal with ice and all sorts of things. So I was just kind of looking for the right weather, and uh, this high-pressure system had moved in, and it was really clear. It was a beautiful flying day, 
And so I scheduled the trip. And the only problem was it was really, really cold out. Um, surface temps across the route were below zero Fahrenheit. And they climbed all the way up to about five degrees Fahrenheit that day. So to make the trip in one day, I went out to the airport at uh, 6.30 in the morning. And I had the airplane preheated all night long, both a cockpit heater and the, and the Tannis. And I pulled it out, and I'd filed my flight plan before I left the house, and um, I filed IFR to Thunder Bay. Uh, even though it was a crystal clear day, I just thought it would be easier. I always find it easier when I'm doing cross countries to be IFR, uh, and especially this was my first time flying into Canada. Mm, okay. So the day before, while I was planning the flight, I had done all the calls to Canadian Customs. Um, I had filled up my EAPIS the, the night before. And then I told Canadian Customs uh, when my arrival time was, and I told them it was 9 a.m. local time. And everything was, was lined up and, and was great. So fired the airplane up and taxied out and departed and then climbed up to 10,000 feet for the first leg. And then it, as I veered off to, uh, I was kind of heading west, westerly heading, and then I had a course change that brought me more to the east, and I climbed up to 11, and I kind of cut the corner of Lake Superior on that leg. Everything was normal on this flight except for, for two things. One, during the climb out, I had something get caught in my eye. And I, I kind of was rubbing my eye and blinking and trying to figure out what it was. And, and I thought, well, what if it's carbon monoxide? And I turned the heat off and turned the vent on and I got really cold really, really fast. And then I thought, well, that's not a symptom of carbon monoxide. And it's not, um, but it, I was thinking about it. And so I brought the heat back on and continued along, and that was kind of the last I thought about carbon monoxide. The uh, the other thing that was a little abnormal on this this leg was that the the windows inside were frosted up, and they they didn't ever really clear up. The windscreen did a little bit, but the side windows never did. And in that particular airplane, if I was alone, the the heater and defrost was always able to kind of keep up with that. Um, if I had a full plane, yeah, we'd get some frost in the side windows. But this particular case was a little worse than normal. And then another thing I did was uh, I always carry a pulse oximeter. Mm -hmm. And I checked my pulse ox when I was, I think I was probably at 10,000 feet when I did this. And I remember, I don't remember the exact number, but I remember it was several points higher than what I normally am. And I thought to myself, well, I'm doing great. Everything's fine. Uh, about 10 minutes out of Thunder Bay, I got a real slight headache. Um, I didn't think anything of it. I usually start the day with coffee and I didn't this morning cause of my early start. And I was just assuming I was getting a little caffeine headache. So I continued on landed in Thunder Bay and taxied in and shut down. And then I called Canadian customs on my phone and to, to let them know I landed. And I was told that I would call them and they would give me, they would either give me a number, uh, that I would write down, um, or they would say to, to stay there and they would come meet me. And uh, when I called them, they asked what time I landed. And at this time, it was about quarter after nine central time. And I said, well, I landed uh, right about 9.10. And they said, 9.10? They were kind of questioning me. And I said, yeah, just a few minutes ago. And then there was kind of a pause and you could tell there was a little bit of confusion there. And then he had me write down a number and, and that was it. So I, I got out of the airplane and I sprinted into the FBO building because it was so cold outside. And when I got into the FBO building, I was a bit out of breath and I had this kind of anxiety feeling. And 
at the same time was when I had found out from the the guy working at the FBO that Thunder Bay was on Eastern time and not Central time like the rest of the Midwest. So when I was talking to the customs agent, I found out I was actually an hour late, and that's why he was confused when I was telling him I landed just right now at nine ten, and for him it was ten fifteen, so he didn't quite understand what I yeah, was doing. Okay. So when I found this out, I thought I'm I messed up, and I attributed that anxiety feeling that I had, the butterflies, with messing up with clearing into customs, and I was really worried that I was going to get into some sort of trouble, or there's going to be some repercussions for this. So up until this point, uh, I've had two symptoms that were physiological symptoms that weren't normal, and I was able to attribute them to two different things. Yeah. So looking in hindsight, you can see all these indicators of carbon monoxide poisoning, right? But like just happens so many times in aviation, when you're in the moment of it, you're thinking, and then you have a rational explanation for it, right? And you kind of, you don't dismiss it, but I mean, even you... This is really important learning point. Even you who were actually attentive to the notion of carbon monoxide poisoning, you had this thing happen to you and you kind of explain it away. Exactly. And I think most accidents that we look at, we can see this chain of events and we can see how little bit, little things are rationalized yeah. along the yeah. way. Yeah. So I spent the day uh, in Thunder Bay and that was delayed because uh, my meeting, of course, I was late for because they, they all were operating on Eastern time. So while I was in Thunder Bay, I met with my customers and I, my headache was kind of coming and going throughout the day. and was a little stronger than what I had earlier. Um, and at lunchtime I had a couple cups of coffee and by the afternoon I felt pretty good. Everything kind of went back to normal. And so there again, I rationalized the caffeine fixing that ache problem. Yeah. About how many hours, uh, Dan, from when you shut down and departed the airplane until you began feeling well again? I would say it was just after lunch, so probably uh, two to three hours. Two to three hours, yeah. And, and some research shows that if you have carbon monoxide levels in your blood, it takes four to six hours to get half of that those levels out of your blood. Exactly. So even at that point, you weren't yet, you didn't yet have half of it, but you had enough of it to go to move down the scale on symptoms for carbon monoxide poisoning, right? So Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's that's kind of that half life is interesting to to un, it's good to be aware of. Um, it shows, as you'll see with my story, how we can have a real short exposure to CO and then have relief from it, but it doesn't leave our body that fast. So we can always build on it. It kind of ratchets up. So when you go back into your second flight, your blood levels are already elevated exactly. for CO, but you don't know that, right? Because they're not quite at the level that you're getting the symptoms that you would expect. Exactly. So by the time I got into the plane in the afternoon to come back, I would, yeah, I would have had measurable amount of CO, but not enough to have the symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. But on the flight back, I had the same problem with the, uh, the frost inside. And again, I was chalking it up to being so cold outside. And the flight from Thunder Bay to Duluth was just to clear customs. I mean, I would have went back direct to Winona if, if I could have did that, but had to clear back into the country. So I flew just down the coast on the north shore of Minneapolis along Lake Superior there uh, and into Duluth to clear customs. That particular flight was gorgeous. The sun had started to go down. Um, it was a little later in the evening than I, I had wanted to be on my way back, but due to the delays in the morning and the mix-up, uh, it's just what it was. 
but it was a, a nice smooth flight. I was at 6,000 feet and very picturesque and I was snapping pictures and I felt great. I had a great business meeting and life was good. So, uh, Dan, can you remind us your flight out of Thunder Bay into Duluth? What altitude did you climb to and, and how long was that? I climbed up to 6,000 feet and it was just over an hour. It was like an hour 10, hour 15, had a little bit of headwinds. But it was a gorgeous flight, smooth as can be, and there wasn't hardly any clouds in the sky. And I felt great the entire time. It wasn't until I, I taxied into the FBO, where the uh, customs agent was going to meet me on the ramp, that I, 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 mean, I felt fantastic. And the second I got out of the airplane and I stood up on the wing, I remember standing up on the wing, and I got a pretty sharp headache at that moment. Now, at this time... You know, I've, I went through the day where I had the anxiety feeling. That's That was unusual for me. I had the uh, headache that I attributed to caffeine. And now this one, I got a headache, but it wasn't in the airplane. I was out of the airplane. And so your brain wasn't quite making that mental connection. Mm-hmm. And the, the the week leading up to this, I have a, a couple daughters, and they were real young at the time. And my five-year-old wasn't feeling very well. And she couldn't really tell us what was wrong, but she was just sick all week. And so at this point, I'm thinking I'm, I'm getting whatever she had. Uh, and here again, I'm justifying away uh, the symptoms. Yeah. So we, we, the custom agent met me on the, on the ramp. He did his thing. We, we kind of both ran back into the FBO to try to stay warm. Uh, finished up the paperwork, and I used the restroom. And I called my wife, told her I'd be home in a little over an hour. And... Not to save dinner for me or anything. And then I, I ran back out to the plane as quick as I could because I, I didn't want it to get cold soaked. Mm. And in Duluth, even though I had it on a heater the whole day, it wouldn't start because it was so cold and I had to get a preheat. So I was trying to avoid that. Um, and the engine fired up right away. And as it did, I just sat on the ramp with it idling and I used my iPad to, to file an IFR flight plan. And then... Uh, I was waiting for my iPad to give me the notification that had been in the system because I knew I couldn't get my clearance until it's in the system. And so while I was doing that, I tidied up the cockpit and got ready for the flight. So the my passenger seat was empty, and uh, I, I kind of tidied it up, and I put my uh, well, I had my kneeboard on, and I put my headlamp on. I always fly with a headlamp at night because I had a similar story to your last podcast with Steve, yeah, yeah. <laughs> electrical failure. So I learned to always wear that headlamp. Yeah, I'm a believer in them. So I had the headlamp yeah. on, and I had my flashlight on the seat next to me. Uh, my cell phone was there, my hat, my gloves. Uh, I put my coat in the back seat because it was bulky, and I was wearing a sweatshirt. And I just had everything ready to go. And then once I got notification that my uh, flight plan was in the system, I went ahead and called and got my clearance. And from startup until clearance was probably 15 minutes, I would guess, mm-hmm. that I was just on the ground idling. Yeah. And we know now you were sitting in that closed cockpit, heater on, you know, warming up your engine, getting everything ready. And meanwhile, carbon monoxide is spilling into your cockpit, but you don't know that. Exactly. And this was a, a C-model Mooney, so it had a 180-horse carbureted engine. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I hear a lot of people say, when I, when I tell my story, well, I fly Lena Peak. And so I'm not at risk. And it's true that when you are lean a peak or you're very, very lean, 
your engine isn't producing as much carbon monoxide, but it, it still is. Yeah. And in this particular case on the ground, I always would lean it till just, you know, yeah. just above idle cutoff. Mm-hmm. So I had it leaned as much as I could even in that time, but it, it didn't, it wasn't enough, you know. Then this is where everything started to happen fast. So I got my clearance. Mooney 49 Victor, clear the one on the airport, as filed, maintain 6,000, expect 9,000, one zero minutes after departure. Departure frequency 125.45, score 4250. Clear the one on as filed, 6,000. Got my taxi clearance, and on the way out to the runway, I ran into a brief 15-second period where I got those butterflies again. Um, and this time, my memory is they were a little more intense, um, but I, I can't really explain it other than an anxiety feeling or butterfly mm. feeling. And then it, it went away. And all the while, since I'd gotten out of the airplane when I landed, I had that pretty pretty intense headache. And as I got up to the run-up area, the butterfly feeling was gone, and the headache, just like snapping your fingers, went away. Mm. And I paused, and I remember thinking, well, what is going on? And I remember thinking, and this is kind of the get home itis thing. I think I was thinking, well, it's only an hour flight. I just want to be sick at home. You know, that's yeah. that's the easiest thing to do. And were you thinking maybe these symptoms go away just because adrenaline is kicking in, or you know, I, I haven't really thought about that. Uh, I have no idea. The best thing I've pieced together is that these symptoms are so similar. It's a type of hypoxia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, we all react differently to hypoxia. And symptoms aren't linear; they can change and, and they can come and go. And, and I'm thinking that's that's kind of more what it was. At this point, then I, I do my run up, and I always do a, a a flow, and then I use a checklist to check things. Um, so I did my flow and did everything, and then I got that checklist out, and I ran through it several times. I ran through it once, and then I ran through it again and again, and I just kind of became hyper focused. It was almost as if I was reluctant to take off. I just didn't, I wasn't making any real decisions. I was just going through everything. And I sat there long enough that the tower had contacted me and asked if I was ready to depart. Moody, four nine or fifty, you ready to go? You need a few more minutes yet. And my response was, I will be in a minute. And about 30 seconds go by, and they just cleared me to depart. Moody, four nine or Victor, turn left in 240, runway 27, clear for takeoff. And... I was just very suggestible at this point, and I thought, okay, and I <laughs> repeated back the clearance, and then I took off. And I distinctively remember on the takeoff roll, uh, I, I took off, and I was probably about 200 feet, and I was I was putting the landing gear up. I reached for the gear lever. As I did that, I had that butterfly feeling. It came back, and it was, again, really short. It was 10 to 15 seconds, and then it went away, and I seemingly felt good again, and I was like, what is going on? And they, I remember they, they, they cleared me for a heading on departure. And so I made a, started to make a left turn for that heading, turned my heading bug to it, and I flipped on my, um, my autopilot on heading bug mode. I had the airplane trimmed for a climb, and in that airplane it was about 120 mile an hour kind of a cruise climb was a good number. And so I had it trimmed for climb, and I had the autopilot on heading bug mode. The next few minutes, um, there was some some traffic calls, and so I was back and forth with ATC a little bit on that. And then there was a handoff to departure. Moody 9149 Victor, contact departure 125.45. And the, immediately I 
I repeated it back, and then I called departure on the tower frequency. We've all done that a time or two. Mm-hmm. Good evening, departure, Mini Nano One Four Nine Victor, climbing through four thousand. And they they said nope. T- uh, contact departure on such and such frequency. Moody Four Nine Victor, you're still a tower. Departure's one two five point four five. So I, I flipped over to departure, contacted them. Good afternoon, departure, Monday Nano One Four Nine Victor. They cleared me direct to Winona, my destination, and up to my altitude of 9,000 feet. And I I remember reading that back, but I slurred when I read it back. Left direct Winona up to 9,000. And at that point, I was thinking something really isn't right. Um, I can't figure it out, can't put my finger on it, but I should probably come back and land. But also, everything was going right um there wasn't anything in dire needs of of being changed at this time so i was real reluctant to change anything um i did enter the direct two on my garmin 530 i did not hit my gps steer button which i usually do when i get a a direct two it's like a muscle memory you know you go direct enter enter and then hit gps steer and i didn't do that the very very next thing i remember is i'm waking up wow so you you were still in the climb, or you? I'm sorry, I missed it. Or you had leveled off? No, I was still in the climb. You're still in the climb, but you had you had your autopilot all set up to to capture the climb and the level off. No, all I had was an Aztec 30, and the Aztec 30 has altitude hold, but that's that's it. And then it'll track heading, or I had GPS steer in this case too. I was tracking heading, and I was trim for climb. So the last thing you remember. You had departed uh, Duluth. You were on a southwesterly heading to intercept your course. You were climbing to altitude. Things weren't feeling right. Yeah, the next thing I know is I'm waking up, and I thought, I fell asleep, and I need to tell ATC I got to go land, and I'm, I'm okay. And so I just started keying the mic with my left hand and was trying to contact ATC. And then I'm looking around and kind of... I'm kind of, you know, dazed right now. And I'm looking straight forward as I'm doing this, and I notice that my window is really clear. Living in in, uh, the River Valley, Mississippi River Valley, uh, all summer long, most of the year, we have so many bugs, you can never keep your window clear. And I was just kind of reveling in how how clear it was and how nice that was. (laughs) And uh, and then I I reached my my left hand forward and, and realized that my window wasn't there anymore. Um, and that's when I sort of snapped into, into the current and looked around and realized that I was on the ground and I wasn't actually flying. Wow. And so describe the scene for us. You're, you're obviously still very drowsy because even though you woke up, you still have a lot of CO poisoning in your bloodstream at this point. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, in hindsight, looking at it, I was so impaired when I woke up that, I mean, I really didn't grasp the situation. I didn't grasp, I didn't really have a grasp of much. I knew I was in a plane. I knew I had crashed. I knew where I was when it happened. I knew what direction I was going when it happened. Um, but beyond that, I, I didn't have, have much awareness of what was really going on. What's the scene in front of you as it, as it begins to come together for you? You're in a field, obviously your gear up, you're just flat. Can you describe it for us? Sure. I, re- I remember looking out forward and, and there was a little rise and there was some trees off to my, my left on the edge of this woods. Um, there was no moon that night, so it was very dark, but the stars were out. 
And I looked off my right wing, and quite a ways away, uh, probably a mile away, I saw a searchlight in a field from a, a car or a truck. And I knew pretty much immediately that they were looking for me. I, I For some reason, I, I guess I, I just assumed I was talking to ATC and people are out looking for me. And I was brought back to a story a friend of mine had where he had an accident at night in his airplane. And he came up short of the airport and was able to call 911 on his cell phone. And the rescue personnel came to the airport, but they couldn't see him. And he had the wherewithal to start flipping on um, airplane lights and a few of the lights did turn on and that's how they were able to see the wreckage so I thought about him immediately and I thought I got to turn all the lights on I got to get this thing lit up and th- none of them were really working um, I was reaching to where the switch panel was for the the lights for the nav lights and landing light and, and all that and it was kind of it was kind of smashed into the panel and the switches were all jammed and they wouldn't they wouldn't operate my airplane had a interior light that had one of those old rotary switches and it was up over my right shoulder and I reached up for that to try to turn that on and I couldn't turn it the right direction. Uh, It took a little too much torque for what I had available in my cold, cold hands. So I knew I had to get out of the airplane to try to get to help. I'll rewind a little bit here too. I I was looking for anything I could to, to signal someone. So I couldn't find my cell phone. I couldn't find my flashlight. My headlamp and my my headset that I was wearing were completely gone. I couldn't find them. Um, so I had access to, to nothing that could really signal anybody. I know how long I was outside based on when FlightAware lost the airplane and when, I, when the 911 call came. And it was about an hour and a half. And the surface temperatures were 5 degrees Fahrenheit. And like I said, I couldn't find my gloves. Um... I couldn't find my hat. I, I was sort of in a pickle. When I w- woke up, I we figure I was probably already on the ground for a half an hour before I before I came to, and the fuselage was kind of ruptured open um, on the firewall, and then a large portion of the windshield was broke out. So I was exposed to the elements uh, from the moment I hit the ground, basically, and I kind of knew I had to get out of the airplane. The first thing I, I realized was I couldn't move my legs at all. And I, I remember looking at my knees and my and my upper leg and, and trying to lift them or wiggle them or move them. And I had no faculties at all with my legs. Um, so I assumed I was paralyzed. So as I was sitting there, I was trying to do some other stuff, you know, trying to find what I could. Um, coincidentally, I, I did find my iPad and uh, it still had the sectional up. And I had the wherewithal to, to look at it and think, am I in Iowa or am I in Minnesota? <laughs> and once I got the answer, I just threw the iPad down. So I, I didn't think about how that could have been valuable as a signaling device. I just threw it aside, and that was something I always I always regretted. But it, it shows how impaired I still was from the carbon yeah. dioxide. But after a while of sitting there trying to figure this out, I thought to myself, if I can wiggle my toes, I'm not paralyzed. That's what they do in the movies anyway. So I, I thought real hard and tried, and I was able to wiggle my toes. And I wasn't able to really move my legs much. Um, but I did realize then that my feet were pinned under the rudder pedals. And so I spent the next few minutes trying to free myself from, from that. And, and one foot came out quite easily, and then the other one I had to kind of lean under there and and really 
literally work out. Once I got free of that, I got out of the airplane and I stood up on the wing. And uh, my my wife had sent with me a pair of bib overalls, some Carhartt bib overalls, um, in the advent of a forced landing. She said, you make sure you bring those. So if you have a problem, you can put those on and you can hike to wherever you need to go. So I thought, well, now's the time. I'm putting these things on. And I, I fetched them out of the back seat, and I remember laying on the wing trying to trying to put them on, and it just wasn't happening. I did not have the uh, dexterity to, to do that. So then I, I gave up on that, and I reached in and got my coat and uh, put that on. But I, my fingers now are so numb, I couldn't zip it up. Uh, I tried, and I just couldn't do it. And the only thing I knew was where I saw that searchlight and I thought I'm going to beeline it for where I saw that. And I hadn't seen anything. I haven't seen it since, but that's where I'm going. And I had a really difficult time walking. I would stand up, maybe take one or two steps and fall down. Um, I remember getting really frustrated when I'd fall backwards because it was not the direction I was going and I'd have to kind of do that last bit over. Um, and And it turns out, at least my understanding is, that when your brain is so deprived of oxygen it tries to keep as much as it can in the important parts and it shuts down you know some of your motor skills like legs Mm. and things and i think that's why i had such a difficult time moving my legs to begin with and then beginning to walk now the whole time this is happening there was a helicopter that was flying overhead and it was really clear to me it was flying a, a grid pattern because it was it was flying east to west patterns, so it would, it would it would appear on the west and it would come straight over to east, and then it would be gone for a few minutes and that would come back a little bit closer, going the other direction, and I think it made four passes that I remember. The very last pass, it did. It flew directly overhead, and I was about a hundred yards from the airplane. I had fell down in this field and I was just kind of laying there and I just kind of gave up, and the helicopter flew directly overhead. And I realized at that point that they weren't going to see me. If they haven't seen me yet, they're not going to. I hadn't seen any other signs of ground searching since that initial light. And I kind of thought, this is it. If they find me, that's great. Um, if they don't, I don't care. That's fine, too. I was, I kind of laid down. I was getting really comfortable. I started to feel warmer. I didn't feel that bitter cold anymore. And I, I basically kind of gave up. Now, this is... Uh, the kind of the neat part of the story is I, I rolled over and just laid on my back and, and enjoyed the view of the mm. stars and thought, I'm just staying here. And directly overhead was a constellation, what's well, it called, a star cluster, Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters. And I've always been drawn to it. A lot of people are, a lot of astronomers and people that look up love Pleiades. And ever since I was a little kid, I thought it was really neat. And three years before, I was loading my pregnant wife into our car at midnight to take her to the hospital, have our, have our baby girl. And as I was loading her into the car, she said, you know, we still don't have a name for this girl. And I looked up and I saw Pleiades and in the, in the mythology, they all have names, these seven stars. I think there's more than seven, but they call it seven stars. And the oldest one is Maya. And I said, well, we could call her Maya, you know, and that's what we ended up naming her. And as I was laying in that field and I look up and I saw Pleiades, that moment uh, three years before flashed into my brain and into my memory. It was the first time I, I, I thought about who I was and what the rest of my life was like. Um, and that was just enough to get me up to get help because I figured 
if I try my hardest and I don't get to help and I don't make it, um, it's not really a sacrifice. As hard as it might hurt to try to get to help, um, if the end result is the same as me laying there, it wasn't a sacrifice at all. So that kind of got me up and moving and through whatever pain and struggles I was going to have. And then fortunately, as time went on, the carbon dioxide was slowly being purged from my body and I was getting a little more strength, a little more mental faculty, and I was able to kind of progress further. So after this realization, I sat up and I kind of looked around and I reassessed the uh, environment and I had just been going one direction and I didn't look anywhere else. And this, after I scoped the, the area and looked back at my airplane, I realized that there was some woods right next to my airplane and just on the other side of the woods, there was some buildings and a light. And that was by far the closest structures to me. So I, I started to head back that direction. I kind of made my way back to the plane. I remember tapping it on the horizontal stabilizer, thanking it, because at that point I grasped the gravity of the situation. And I, I really believe that the strength mm. of the Mooney helped Help save me on that one. Yeah, they're they're legendary for that cabin strength. You know, the the Moonies are known for that. They designed it into the the build of their airplane, and uh, in this case, um, you're you're certainly glad they did. I uh, definitely so. And and you know, as pilots, we kind of have a a bond to our airplanes, mm-hmm. you know, and we we talk to them a little bit. At least some of us do. <laughs> so I, I thanked it, and uh, and then I kind of beelined it off towards that light, and I was real close to these woods and I get up to the edge of the woods and there was a lot of brush and stuff. And I remember thinking, man, if I was healthy and I would walk around this, I'd find a way around. But I did, you know, I was just point A to point B. I, I wanted to get to help. So I decided to kind of trudge through it and I got really tangled up in these, these really thick uh, brush. And it took a little bit to, to realize that I was actually pressed against a barbed wire fence. <laughs> so I had to, I had to just kind of drop down and I crawled under it. Then I was in these woods and I had uh, some trees, which helped. I could actually grab onto and balance, which was nice. Um, But I also had a lot more snow. The field was really windswept and didn't have much snow on it. But in the woods, there was maybe a foot of snow that I had to kind of deal with. But I would try to kind of go from tree to tree and I'd fall down and crawl a little bit. And at this point, I, I realized the gravity of how bad my hands were um, with the cold. Uh, I had zero feeling. They literally felt like bricks on my hands, and I couldn't move my fingers anymore. Um, and I was getting really upset that I was going to live through this, and I was going to have all this damage to my hands. And uh, that really bothered me at that particular time. But anyway, I made it up to the, the first outbuilding that I saw, and kind of scurried along the edge and balanced myself on it. And when I got around the corner, I saw a house with a, a blue glow flicker of a TV, you know, in the window. And it was the greatest light I've ever seen. So I marched over to the house and pounded on the window. And, and there was a wonderful lady inside who uh, lived there. The, the crab trees live at this house. And I scared her half to death, I think, pounded on her window. But she came and, and let me in her house and uh, and then called for help. And, and that's kind of where the end of the mm. of that struggle, struggle mm. was. And uh, how long do you think it took you to get from the time you started until you made it into the into the house? Well, she made the, 
the call, the 911 call at 9.15 at night, and the, the last radar trace when I was about 1,000 feet up was at 7.48. So it was about an hour and a half. Hey, listeners. Do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. I'm curious first about the aerodynamics of the situation you were in. So you have uh, navigation enabled but you for the autopilot, but nothing else, right? So you're hand flying it in the climb when you pass out, full power, full mixture, holding 120 knots, and you trimmed it manually, trimmed it up for that. Is that right? Yeah. So after, typically with that airplane, after takeoff, the gear comes up, the flaps are up. And then I would manually trim it for about 100, 105 knots, 120 miles an hour. And then I, I turned on the autopilot for heading mode. And I hadn't I hadn't uh, activated any altitude control yet. And so, yeah, it was aerodynamically, it was just basically keeping wings level for me. It's tracking a heading, just climbing at that, uh, that trimmed airspeed. And it just shows, you know, for student pilots that are listening, the power of trimming to an airspeed. You, you climb at the same speed, you level off at the same speed, you descend at the same speed. Oh, the only thing that changed in my flight was power settings. So, you know, I ran out of power as I climbed because of the, because of the altitude, and then I ran out of gas, so I, I lost power, and I came down at that same speed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's really, you make a really good point there about your trimming in the climb, and good thing you did. You've got it trimmed up for that climb. The airplane holds, you know, without any input from you, this climb all the way to what you think is somewhere around twelve to 13,000, you said? Yeah, it was showing like 12.7 was about the average. Yeah, and, and then it maintains what it can at that power setting and that trim setting till it runs out of gas, and then it holds that same airspeed, really, uh, yep. or uh, the force on the flight controls all yeah. the way through the descent. And could you tell when it landed in the field, uh, Dan, how long distance horizontally did it skid? Well, from the first impact to where the airplane stopped was 500 feet. Okay. Um, and it, according to the, when I went back and I spoke to the crab trees, they explained it further because I got to go out and look. Um, the first impact area was real short. It was like 30 feet long. And then the airplane came airborne again. And it, it flew about 300 feet. So really, I had about 30 feet, and then I went 300 in the air, and then there was about 200 of a skid. Okay, okay. I could, I could not have done that awake in the daytime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. So uh, that's kind of interesting because we all talk about, how, you know, the, what you really need to do in an engine-out landing is dissipate your energy over, over a horizontal distance as long as you can. Exactly. And in this case, you're showing that being totally incapacitated, your airplane hits, it comes up in the airborne, but it hits again, and it really only needed 200 feet to stop in a manner that was obviously survivable for you. Exactly. Um, a big key for me was I did have shoulder harnesses. Yeah. Um, and I had a big diagonal bruise across my chest that was there for a good month. Um, so without those, I'm sure I would have perished. But yeah, what you say, I, I try to I try to impart that on people, is if you can if you have an engine failure and you can get to the ground and and translate and and get, change your energy to a horizontal movement, 
and give it time to dissipate just a little bit, you're, you've got a really good shot. As you look back on this uh, scenario, Dan, let's talk about carbon monoxide poisoning and just some lessons learned from that. You, you had a f- couple classic symptoms and then a couple symptoms that aren't really classic. And I heard you speak, uh, you know, when we were at the, the MSPA convention, and part of your message is the symptoms aren't the same for everybody and there's not as intense for everybody, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and that's sort of my own conclusions after after this has happened to me and I've been digging into this. I always felt like it's it was a very linear thing. You would you'd start off with a real slight headache and then it would get worse and it would get worse and then you'd get nausea and it sounded like things started and then progressively got worse. And I found out that they don't. They can come and go and they, and they they behave very differently. And that's it. Like I said, it is hypoxia because the carbon monoxide is displacing the oxygen. It's going in the same spot in your hemoglobin that oxygen does, and the hemoglobin carries oxygen through the body, but it does it uh, much stronger. They say about 200 times stronger. So if you have if you have some oxygen molecules and you have some carbon monoxide molecules, and you got hemoglobin, the carbon monoxide are almost always going to beat it out. They're always going to win. And so it's forced hypoxia. You you have less oxygen traveling through your body. So not only can symptoms among different people differ, but I would imagine based on the description you just gave, that depending on your physiological condition, your symptoms may be different on any given day, depending on what you ate, how tired you are, uh, other elements in the environment at the time. Exactly. That's kind of what I, what I kind of took away from this. And I found that it, it is good to understand the symptoms and understand what happens. I mean, that's that's vitally important. But it's also really important to understand that by the time you have the symptoms, your cognitive ability is already diminished greatly. Mm-hmm. And the classic symptoms are nausea, dizziness, um, some mental confusion or some mental agitation. It's important for people to know that it's odorless you won't smell it. You won't taste it. If you're now, if you're smelling exhaust in your airplane, what you're smelling is something different from carbon monoxide. But it still indicates that you could potentially have carbon monoxide. So it's still really important that you do something about it. But um, the carbon monoxide that'll get you is actually odorless. You won't be able to detect it. Exactly. I, I had no idea that I had any carbon monoxide or exhaust leaching into my cabin. I think part of the problem with aviation is. We get so used to smelling exhaust, and 100 low-lead exhaust is, is a lot different than automotive exhaust, and I think we just get really numb to it. And so you definitely can't count on smelling, even thinking you're going to be able to smell the exhaust. Yeah. We talked earlier about you had some pretty classic symptoms, and you were rationalizing them away, which would be so easy to do because you had rational explanations for it. I'm a big coffee drinker myself. If I don't drink coffee in the morning, I'll get a headache. I I would have immediately attributed that headache to lack of coffee um, like you did. As you look back on it, uh, Dan, what are some of the lessons learned that you take away from the the scenario? Well, two different ones, right? Uh, From the carbon monoxide standpoint, I learned that the only way you can reliably prevent this is with a carbon monoxide detector. Um, you can't count on yourself to to detect it or to be if you, when you by the time you get the symptoms cognitively, you might not be able to put the pieces together. So a detector is key. There's 
a lot of different types of detectors in the market. There's even more coming on the market now. So it's a it's a great time. Uh, technology has gotten to a point where we can have really reliable, good detectors in the airplanes. A big one everyone is familiar with are those cards. You'll see there's two of them. There's a biometric one and there's a uh, chemical one. Both of those I don't really recommend using. And uh, many people can attest to this. I've been in so many airplanes where those are two or three or five or 10 years old and they all have a real short shelf limit 30 days to 90 days depending on the the card so i don't recommend those another thing with those is you have to be cognitively able to notice it and take action and as i said by the time you are getting poisoned you might not have the the wherewithal to do that yeah, that that's an important point, isn't it? Um, yeah, I'm with you. The the cards that we used for so long uh, really aren't very effective. I use the uh, the Sentry device because it provides a lot of other things in addition to CO2 detection, and it gives you levels. and I and I like uh, I like seeing the actual level when it comes up with a warning. So beyond that, if you sense any of these symptoms, uh, you know, you got a headache, you got some dizziness, your cognitive function slowing down, you're starting to get agitated with people, maybe you're getting nauseous, especially if you have a combination of those, you know, one or more of those symptoms, hopefully you have a detector, uh, but if you don't, you get those symptoms. Now, Dan, what can pilots, you're airborne, you, you, you begin to realize you're getting these symptoms. The onset can come quickly, as it did for you. What do they do? Well, obviously, you want to try to prevent the carbon monoxide from coming into the cabin. The, one of the common ways it comes in is through the heating system. Uh, if you have a breach in your muffler inside the heat exchanger, you're going to get exhaust in, into the, the heating system and it's going to enter the airplane. So the first thing you do is turn off the heat. Then the second thing you do is, is get airflow into the airplane, whether that's through fresh air vents, windows, whatever. It's really good, that, like you, you said, the Sentry has a parts per million readout, and a lot of these portables do. And what's great about those is it can help you troubleshoot uh, the carbon monoxide and where it's coming in. Only about 50% of the carbon monoxide related accidents happen through the heating system. So it's important to know that. Um, a lot of people will say, well, I don't run my heat uh, or I only fly in Texas or, or whatever. So I'm not at risk. And the data doesn't really show that. It shows that everyone's at risk when you have a internal combustion engine in front of you uh, with exhaust that exits in front of you. There's always potential to get it in the cockpit. So it's good to, to troubleshoot where it's coming in um, and then use common sense and, and act accordingly in getting fresh air in. Um, the reason I say that is I've hypothesized situations anyway. A lot of times people will get infiltration in a belly panel or a wing root fairing that's leaking or a gear well or something like that. And if they get infiltration in that way, and let's say they open a, a side window, that actually might lower the pressure inside the cabin and bring more carbon monoxide in. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to you want to look at it that way. If you have fresh air vents that are located in front of the engine, in the front of a cowl or something, and you can do that to kind of slightly pressurize the cabin, that might be a better solution to keep it out. Yeah, yeah, Th- that's an issue in uh, you know Navions that I fly. The uh, the gear retract up sort of underneath the fuselage, and one of the things you look for at annual time is to make sure that the, all the holes underneath where that gear comes up, that they're all sealed properly. 
And uh, it's an important part of an annual inspection for any aircraft owner to make sure that those different holes are sealed, especially any kind of holes around the engine or in the direct airflow of the exhaust. To your point, the heater shroud is often the one that's thought of, you know, is is the culprit there. Um, Not the shroud, but the, the muffler underneath the shroud. And the problem with that is, of course, you can't see the muffler underneath the shroud unless you take the shroud off, which is required at annual inspection. I wish it were always done the way it was supposed to be done, but it's not. So it's an important inspection every year to take a look at that exhaust system and look for any holes in there. Take the shroud off, look for any holes in your exhaust underneath that shroud. Um, But to your point, remember, there are certainly other sources uh, that can cause carbon monoxide inside your cockpit. Exactly. And that's what's been great with a lot of these these detectors that are on the market that have uh, digital readouts. A lot of guys are using them to troubleshoot their airplane. And I've, I know a fellow Mooney pilot who, who found uh, CO coming in through his rudder boots um, that were going through the firewall. Uh, and it was a simple fix. He could fix those up and, and he was on his way. I use a portable when I every flight during run-up, um, I just put it in front of the heat vent and I turn the heat on and I turn the heat off and I make sure that there's no rise. And if there is, I know there's a breach someplace in there. Yeah. And what's been really neat is really, really small levels. Uh, when you get to know your airplane and what numbers you're used to seeing, really small rises. I mean, minuscule rises. And people are, are digging into it and finding that they have a little pinhole someplace or they're finding some little breach or, and what what that's allowing you to do as an owner is is perform the maintenance where it's convenient at home well before it's a dangerous issue. Mm. Perhaps another lesson learned for pilots on multi-leg flights is that if you experience any of the any of these symptoms or a combination of these symptoms on on a leg of your flight or you're suspected in any way to realize that that CO is going to remain in your blood for a long time, four to six hours before only half of it is out of your blood supply. Exactly. And I, you know, I think that was sort of the trifecta for me on this, this particular day. You know, I had three legs uh, and it happened on the third leg. Yeah. And you never really uh, had time, enough time out of the cockpit for it to get expunged from your first leg. So you kind of went into each subsequent leg with the elevated levels until it finally caught up with you. Exactly. And so aside from a good, reliable carbon monoxide detector that you take with you every time, and aside from paying attention to the symptoms, especially if you see any kind of combination of those symptoms, and paying attention to your airplane at annual, doing the inspections that are required to make sure your system is sound and you have no leaks in the cockpit. The other ones that I would bring up, Dan, is I agree with you, shoulder harnesses probably saved your life. And uh, I'm, I'm still disappointed when I see airplanes, especially front seat, you know, airplanes that don't have shoulder harnesses in them. It's just a proven safety advantage to have those shoulder harnesses. Yeah, it it really is. I I really nag people. Um, And to take it one step further, uh, AmSafe, who makes the seatbelt airbags system, they have, I think they cover almost all airplanes with their, their new STC, and they're really not that expensive. That alone would have saved me a lot of grief in, in some of my injuries. But what they do, a lot of guys that, that are put, you know, they're discouraged with the shoulder harness kits because they don't have shoulder harnesses now and they're looking at a, a, a kit to put them in and it's, you know, fifteen or $1,800. And, uh, you know, you're halfway to an AmSafe um, 
install mm. at that price and they come with inertia reels and shoulder harnesses and the, the whole deal. You know, another lesson learned that's come up so many times in these conversations we've had is that survival equipment is what you wear on you. Anything else is camping equipment. Exactly. That was the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways for me on, on that's changed my flying and, and how I do it is, is I have a, I have an EPIRB now, I have a strobe light, um, signal mirror, uh, a whistle. Um, what I learned in my particular accident, and I think it, it really fits for most of uh, the flying we do in the United States, is the number one thing is is being able to contact someone, is communication. Mm-hmm. And so, like you say, it's camping equipment, it, the stuff that isn't on you. But all, a lot of times we don't need, we don't, we don't really need the tent and the hatchet and, you know, the... 400 feet of parachute cord and all that um we need several reliable ways to contact people for help yeah important we just did a podcast with a pilot that pulled uh, a chute in a cirrus and he had a uh, a personal locator device but he lost it as he was exiting the airplane because he didn't have it you know attached to his body and the Coast Guard that ended up helping rescue him, it took him about 45 minutes to find him. They said they could have flown within feet of him immediately if he'd had that uh, PLD. So Really? Yeah, yeah and I, I think about that with my accident. Um, years ago, I had a PLB that had the built-in strobe light on the top, mm-hmm. and it, it, it had expired and the battery's dead, and I didn't have it, and I wasn't flying with it anymore. And I thought about that when, when that helicopter's flying over, and I, I, I was still trapped in the plane the first time it, it flew by. If I could have activated that and just held it out the little side window, I wouldn't even have had to crawl out of the plane. I mean, they, they, would, have, they would have came and got me. Yeah. So uh, what was the issue with your airplane? What caused the carbon monoxide leak in your airplane? Well, I had the classic crack in my, in my muffler that was underneath the heat, heat trap. Oh. And it was right in the center of the muffler between it's a four into one system and that sits underneath. So to me, it looked a little bit like a stress crack and it, and it started, started there. And, uh, the flight before this day, I had a backfire starting up and it startled my wife and I told her, ah, it's not a big deal. It's just a backfire. But with that airplane, I, I think I had that airplane 680 hours. I've flown it. Um, I maybe had two or three backfires the whole time I've owned it. So it it startled me too, but I didn't think anything of it afterwards. I I believe that if it didn't start the crack, it definitely made it worse. Well, what a fantastic outcome, really a miraculous outcome. And uh, thank you for uh, sharing it with us, Dan. Anything else that uh, that you'd like to talk about or share with our audience? Well, my biggest takeaway is, a good digital carbon monoxide detector. There's lots of portable ones on the market. I would steer away from home detectors. Um, the way they are designed is to prevent false positives. They need a set amount of CO for a set amount of time. So theoretically, you could have kind of a, a perfect storm where you have lower CO exposure that's building it up in your bloodstream and that detector isn't alarming. And then you get out of the airplane and, and uh, refuel and, and go about your business, get in for that second leg and still have a little bit elevated, but not enough to make the detector go off. So I would stay away from the home detectors, go with ones that show you digital readouts are great, gives you an audible alarm, visual alarms are good, anything that'll help you snap you out of it if, if you are getting impaired. 
so that's that's the one takeaway and then the other goes back to what you said about um if it's not on your person it's it's just camping gear so i fly with a flight vest now and, and i have all sorts of stuff in there that's on me that isn't going to get lost if if there's a, a forced landing yeah great well thanks so much for your time dan thank you richard we'll uh, we'll talk to you guys soon Truly a miraculous story that Dan just shared with us. I've never really thought about it, but trimming an airplane can save your life. It seems like in this instance, Dan on climb out has his airplane trimmed for the airspeed he wants on climb out, passes out. The airplane maintains that trim setting, and that posture, all the way up to climb till it runs out of gas and holds it all the way down until it lands in a field with Dan being incapacitated the whole time. That's really quite miraculous. A combination of just some good luck on on his part with the aircraft running out of fuel, passing overhead a city, landing in a field, and being in a very sturdy airplane. The Mooney is built with a cabin, a sturdy cabin for safety reasons for that. Lands in an open field, bounces and then skids a couple hundred feet, dissipates that energy, and then just wakes up and is able to stumble away from it and survive. So some great lessons learned there for all of us. If you'd like more, visit our website at airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was and see pictures that Dan submitted. We'll also have pictures of the inside of an engine compartment and pictures of a muffler and a shroud and carbon monoxide residue to give you an idea of what to look for in your pre-flight. Hey, listeners. If you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue them and our other important safety work, please consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org slash donate. And help us continue our important work to advance general aviation safety. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 